0: Good, good. Okay. um, Welcome everybody to this uh, student careers panel. Uh, My name is Michael Mason. I'm the director of the Middle East Centre at LSE. Um, How many of you are LSE students, by the way? Put your hands up. Most. Who's from elsewhere? Several. Okay. Um, The LSE Middle East Centre is, we're not a teaching department. Uh, We're a research hub within the school. So we kind of uh, serve as a coordinating space for research on the Middle East and North Africa across the LSE. It's including all departments, so we fund research across all departments and we have a, in addition to our research, we have a quite a lively uh, events programme. If you want to know more about the centre, please go to our website, you can sign up get our newsletter. And uh, we haven't got a lot of time tonight, so I, I can't really say too much about the centre, uh, but perhaps this being a student careers panel event, I should say something, in the last couple of years we've, we've moved in, in quite a significant way to try to increase engagement with students across the school uh, through things like master uh, uh, we have a master's dissertation prize, we have internships, paid internships, which we advertise on our website. So if you're interested in that sort of opportunity, please go to the website and you'll see adverts for the internships. And we've been um, also, uh, um, uh, we create, we have desk space if you're a PhD student working on the Middle East in North Africa, which is often quite valuable because I know PhD students in some departments are often sort of fighting to get a desk, but we can guarantee you a dedicated desk space in the Middle East Centre. And lastly, we have a, a live in the Middle East Centre which, which I think is a great reference library, but it hasn't been integrated into the LSE library collection. So over the summer, we've been digitalizing the sort of the, the uh, collection and that will be searchable. And uh, we'll have the option for students to come into the, to the Middle East Centre uh, at least one day a week in term time to consult the reference library. I think when we did the work on the library, most of the books in the library uh, are not available in the, in the main LSE library including some material in in Arabic. So it's important that we make that resource accessible to to the students. You'll also see that we have a um, a sort of Arabic website and we have uh, extensive social media, both in English and Arabic. So any sort of uh, uh, um, interest in the center, we're gonna have a reception after the careers event. Please come to me, come to my, if if you're one of my colleagues from the center, please put your hand up. So identify my colleagues in the centre and just chase them up in the reception if you want to find more about, about the centre. Okay, so that's a very sort of uh, summary description because I want to move on to the main business for tonight. And um, one of the things we do at the centre is to get engage more with students. I know the LSE Careers Service is fantastic stuff but usually the LSE Careers events are kind of uh, um, shaped according to departments or sectors of work like finance or NGOs or international organizations, for example, and we thought there was a gap to identify those interested in careers related to the Middle East and North Africa. And particularly to invite people who've carved out distinguished careers uh, in relation to Middle East and North Africa in different spheres, different kind of spheres of activity. And the point of tonight is to uh, introduce you to three fantastic individuals who will talk uh, about their own career pathway for about five to seven minutes. And then you can ask some questions, any questions you like. And then we'll have a session outside from seven to eight where we can carry on the conversation. So we want to make this as interactive as possible. Hence, we, won't, we don't don't to devote too much time to sort of speaking to you uh, about the centre or particular career pathways. OK, so I hope that is something that you will agree to in terms of the format. I'm going to do it anyway. But um, just to let you know, yeah. Uh, uh, we did have I did have a colleague uh, uh, who couldn't make it tonight. Uh, um, uh, one of my early career research colleagues in the centre, Polly Withers, unfortunately uh, couldn't make it tonight. Um, she was going to talk about early career sort of academic pathways. I know some of you might be thinking about going on to doing perhaps a PhD, maybe an academic career, and she was going to talk about some of these sort of challenges and opportunities around that. Now, me being academic as well, a little. More, sit a bit more, a few more years under my belt. Um, I'm happy to maybe talk a little bit about that, or perhaps mainly in terms of reception afterwards. Or in questions, if you've got questions about an academic career, uh, uh, what sorts of opportunities there are, how you do that, I'll be happy to to, to talk to that. Polly was going to talk to that, uh, Dr. Withers, but she's not with us, so I can hopefully handle the questions about that sort of career pathway even though it's, 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 it's been some years since I was a PhD student but I do remember the kind of uh, how the, the key challenges. Okay let's go on to business. So let me know this, this event is being recorded. Uh, one thing we try and do with our events Middle East Centre is, is record as much as we can. We make those uh, recordings usually available as audio podcasts and that kind of increases the sort of opportunity for for folks to see what we do and hear what we do, particularly, I think, um, important in terms of our kind of uh, research-led events. It means that the research findings get greater exposure. Um, so what I'm going to do now is I'm going to welcome our three speakers, uh, uh, one who is online, and then we'll uh, I'll give them a, a short bio on each. The initial bios I had about our speakers were really, really long which says a lot about the distinguished nature of their careers. So we've kind of shortened their lives. I apologize if I leave out crucial parts of your career, yeah, Yeah. Um, and then I'll ask each of the three speakers to to speak for between five to seven minutes um, about their career, to highlight perhaps some of the, the key kind of opportunities and challenges in that distinctive career sphere, and then we'll just throw it out to questions. And after the questions, we'll, we'll have a reception outside and we can carry on the interaction. So please treat this as, as an opportunity for you, as a resource, you know, and if you want to find out something about careers in Middle East and North Africa, please uh, talk to us. So on to our, onto our three uh, distinguished guests. And I have to say to all our three guests, thank you so much for taking, taking your valuable time to come here to LSE to talk to us and to you. Uh, the students about their about their careers. Um, first, uh, and this I'll, I'll go through the speakers in terms of the order in which they'll they will talk to you. Um, and I'll give all the bios first, and then we'll go to the go to the uh, uh, each of the speakers. Yeah. So the first one is online. I hope you can all see him. Uh, Reza Reza Afshar is the executive director of Independent Diplomat, which is a non-profit, non-government organization founded in 2004. Uh, previously, Reza was head of the team responsible for Syria policy at the UK's Foreign and Commonwealth office. Uh, during his time at the FCO, now the FCDO, uh, Reza also served as head of the Middle East, Asia and Europe team at the UK mission to the United Nations between 2009 and 2012. Uh, during his 13 years of service, he also worked on Iraq from 2003 to 4, Zimbabwe, leading the UK Foreign Office's crisis team. There in 2008, and negotiated new arms control protocols relating to cluster munitions and landmines. On my right, uh, Hind Hassan is an international correspondent for Vice News, covering conflicts, humanitarian crisis, and the biggest developing stories from around the world. Since joining uh, Vice News, uh, she's reported on wars and uprisings across the globe, including the post-ISIS legacy in Syria, Lebanon's blast demonstrations, And the the Battle of Um, Nagorno-Karabakh. Hindarsan was embedded with the Taliban in Afghanistan just months before the groups take over Kabul, which you may well have uh, have seen, and was on the ground in Jerusalem and Gaza ahead of the military offensive on the Strip. Prior to joining Vice News, uh, uh, she worked as a reporter for Sky News. Uh, On my left, uh, Ahmed Tabak Shelly is a capital markets professional with over 25 years experience in US and MENA markets. He is the Chief Strategist of the Asia Frontier Capital Iraq Fund of the National Bank of Kuwait. Ahmed is also a visiting fellow at the LSU Middle East Centre. He is researching Iraq's economy and political economy with a specific focus on the economic aspects of the relationship between the government of Iraq and the Kurdistan uh, regional government. So before I go to, to Reza for the first sort of uh, 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 sort of uh, uh, talk about career, can I please can you join me to welcome the guests tonight? And again, I apologize. If I left something crucial throughout your careers there. You can you can fill in Can we go to you. Yeah, Reza, over to you. Thank you. Hi. Thanks for the
1: introduction and thanks for having me. I hope you can hear me okay. Um, i just realized my radiators, I'm working from home, my radiators have come on and sometimes they're very noisy. I live in New York and New York still works on steam for some reason, Um, uh, like the industrial revolution, and they make a lot of noise, so it's like myself. Um, uh, uh, I apologize in advance. Um, Thanks very much for having me. Uh, I will start with my, career path as it was. And just to give you some background, um, I was the son of a migrant. My, my mother um, fled the Iranian revolution in 1979. Uh, she was eight months pregnant with me. And uh, so I was born in the UK, sorted by luck. And I grew up kind of understanding that I had been lucky to, to be brought up in the United Kingdom and to get a sort of relative freedom that I would not have got had I been elsewhere and I was very grateful for that and that sort of shaped my decision making as I became older I was very interested in the world but I was also sort of very grateful to have been given that opportunity um, to live and work in a place um, uh, uh, where I had freedom that I would not have had in Iran and it sort of made me want to do something in return and you know I thought about the military but I'm not a very... um, compliant person, uh, so I thought that probably wouldn't work, Uh, and I knew that I was really interested in foreign affairs uh, and what was going on around the world, and I sort of landed on wanting to to work in some aspect of diplomacy and and to do so for the British government, and I sort of knew that by the time I was maybe 14 or 15. And uh, so when I was at university, I was kind of focused, quite focused on that. And I ended up um, applying uh, through the Fast Dream, and I ended up, uh, I think I was offered the job before I graduated, and I ended up um, at the Ministry of Defence. And this is sort of important, and this was left out of the bio when you edited it, but but it's sort of the most important aspect of my um, career, and, and something that's been a thread
2: throughout my career, which is luck, basically. So I ended up at the Ministry
1: of Defence, uh, and I started in 2001. And six months later, 9-11 happened. And I happened, by total luck, to just be sort of put uh, over into this sort of uh, unit that had been set up straight after 9-11 to work with Pakistan and the US on messaging around 9-11 and while i was in this unit i just happened to end up uh in one of the well in the first diplomatic mission over to afghanistan just after 9-11 so basically just after the taliban fell i think it was a month later um literally the day after we were on a plane there were just a few of us and we were the first british diplomats into the country um, and that happened through no hard work of my own. It happened through total luck. Um, but once I was there, I seized the opportunity and I, and I got stuck into to, to, to various kinds of work. And um, we can, you know, I'm sure people have questions um, later, but fundamentally
2: it sort of set my career off as someone at the age of 22 who'd been
1: put into a sort of crisis situation and was able to deal with it. And it shaped the rest of my career and I went forward in government, I ended up after that, uh, I think my bio says I did some arms control negotiations, but I kept getting pulled into every crisis that happened, so I was in, um, headed up a what we call a political military team in the Foreign Office uh, upon Iraq in 2003. I disagreed with the invasion, but I thought uh, maybe naively that I could uh, do some some damage limitation uh, taking that job, I couldn't, I failed. uh, after that, um, I ended up uh, in various uh, other jobs back in Afghanistan for two years doing um, uh, counter narcotics work in 2008. Um, and then uh, eventually, uh, after Zimbabwe, uh, again working on another crisis, eventually I ended up at the UK mission to the UN. Uh, and there I had already sort of done negotiating on arms control a few years earlier and I knew that I was a sort of good negotiator uh, and I ended up there being involved in all of the Arab Spring work and um, I led our negotiations on Libya that resulted in, if any of you guys are students of um, international relations, uh, the author and negotiator of the resolutions 1970 and 1973 um, that, uh, that referred Libya to the International Criminal Court and then later authorised the NATO International Um, The point being here that, you know, up to that point, all my career was basically being in the right place in the right time and picking up experience as I I went along and kind of learning from those experiences at each stage. And I think, um, you know, by the time I got to the UK mission to the UN, I had a really good sense of how the relationship between decision makers and policy, and then what actually happens on the ground, and I got that that insight of how you can affect change from London or from New York at a decision-making level and affect change you know 3,000 miles away. I got that from my first experience in Afghanistan, and I think that's why you know when I talk about luck being a big factor in my career, it was that experience that sort of led me to start making some of the linkages after the uk mission i ended up briefly serving the foreign secretary as his um, middle east advisor and then i ran our syria policy in 2013 and i resigned um in 2013 because we failed to intervene after the chemical weapons attack uh, that happened in august 2013 i thought that to intervene in this case, unlike Iraq, where I thought intervention was a bad idea, in Syria I thought it was absolutely essential, uh, and I thought that we'd let Syrians down badly. I had sat across from Syrians and promised them that we were going to intervene, and so I resigned, um, and ended up now running this non-profit organisation where we help various opposition groups, marginalised groups, rebel and revolutionary groups, uh, some. Um, nation states as well and we help them in their negotiations and diplomacy either to create peace or in some cases uh, for other things for example um, we help pacific islands with respect to climate change negotiations Um, um, and i think sort of the route that i've ended up here you know has been i think semi-deliberate but but not really and i think the biggest thing i'd say to people is there's no substitute for two things really. One is having a really clear idea of the effect that you want to have in the world and and what it is you want to do and how you want to do it. And then being willing to be flexible and to seize opportunities as and when they come and not be too prescriptive about what you do, but to gain experience
2: and do the learning. And I don't think there's any substitute in this field there's no real substitute for experience. And I think, personally, that that experience should start with seeing um, seeing things from the
1: perspective of what happens to the people who are most affected by the crises and conflicts that happen, and how those dynamics work, and then taking that and translating it into, your, um, into what you want to do for your career. Um, I don't want to go on, Michael, because I know you're on a tight schedule, um, but, you know, when I answer some questions later, I mean, there's some points that I'd love to make about kind of what's up with diplomacy at the moment and how, uh, you know, whether it's an effective sort of place to be having a, having a career, what some of the challenges are, um, and so on. But I don't want to um, go too long in my opening
0: remarks. Thank you very much for that. Much appreciated. And it's, I think there's lots there that will be picked up on in, in, in questions, and um, this desire to, to, to have a clear idea of what you want to do, and particularly to try and have some kind of truth and integrity in terms of your, how you deal with those who are most affected uh, by by sort of crisis, not events in the world, is, is something which holds across a lot of I think, career pathways. Uh, thanks very much for that. Hind, over to you. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Shall I make this this way? Okay, can you hear me? Um, thank you as well for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I'll just go back into how I ended up in journalism. Um, I was born in Iraq and my parents travelled to the United Kingdom to a city called Hull, up north. I don't know if there's any northerners in here. No, never really. <laughs> um, yeah, and and my dad went to study, and that was the plan that he was going to go finish his PhD in um, science and plant genetics, and then we were all going to go back to Iraq, and you know I was going to grow up there and you know live live in Iraq. And it didn't happen because it was the eighties. There was the Iran Iraq War. There was sanctions. There was the Gulf War. There was the two thousand and three war. So it was just endless and so i grew up watching tv and watching conflict and having family talking about it and having friends talking about it not my friends my parents friends and that's all that my life was was just conflict war, politics and and it kind of infiltrates you doesn't it (laughs) you can't get away from it and and so that just kind of was always something that I got more and more interested in and when I went back to Iraq for the first time when I was 17 and then again when I was like 19 I think my the interest my personal interest in where it was that I came from originally where I was born and this divide that existed between me and, and Iraq and I, I had an interest in politics and it grew but like everyone in my family I went to university and I studied um, science so I have Two brothers, two sisters, and they all—they're either doctors, dentists, or computer scientists. And I studied medicinal chemistry, and I had pretty much no choice in that. You know, it was—it was a step down. Okay, you're not going to be a doctor. It's a disappointment. Okay, we'll take it. It's got medicine in the title. That's fine. Just maybe tell people you do pharmacy or something like that. And and so I went and studied medicinal chemistry at university. Uh, But I knew from the beginning that that wasn't the career path that I wanted to take and it was, I was studying it because there was never really, I never considered doing anything but a science subject. And, um, but as the years went on and I became more actively involved in the student paper, more actively involved in politics, um, I realized that there was a different route that I really, really wanted to take. And, you know, as a student, you consider different things. I thought about politics. but. I realized I didn't want to be confined to a specific political party or have to adhere to political lines because I didn't necessarily agree with all of them and I was very actively involved in in, um, the student paper and so I thought, this I think I want to go into journalism, I I want to study journalism and I looked into the master's programs that existed and the scholarships that were available and I thought, okay, this is what I'm going to do and I went and spoke to my parents and they completely lost it. (laughs) <laughs> they, I love them to bits. They, they, the sacrifices that they have made is incredible. And, you know, I, I couldn't even start to imagine going through what they've been through and, you know, sacrificing my life as much as they have for us. But they definitely did not want me to go into, they definitely didn't want me to be a journalist. My dad said to me, he's like, oh, you know, All the other daughters, the Iraqi daughters want to be doctors and lawyers, and my daughter wants to be Tony Blair. I was like, I don't want to be Tony Blair, but that's, it was, um, it was very, very difficult to convince them, Um, and I think after now 14 years in the industry, they kind of accept it, and they're kind of okay with it. I went to an Iraqi wedding recently, and we were at a table, and there was this, young Iraqi lady sat next to me and she was like oh, your parents must be so proud of you and I said why do you ask him is here <laughs> and uh, and my dad said what I said, she says "He must be proud of me and he was like ah. <laughs> um, and so yeah it took a long time to get here but I basically applied for a scholarship applied for a place in a master's degree in broadcast journalism in London um, and I was very, very lucky. I got the scholarship, I got the place with NUJ, very um, much still to this day, appreciate that from the NUJ. And um, and then it was a whole other hustle to get into international politics because um, journalism is a very, very competitive place. Journalism remains an elitist industry. The vast majority of people who work, and I say this every time, the vast majority of people in the newsroom say, do not represent necessarily the the public. You have a lot of people from private school backgrounds, from boarding schools. And there are there's definitely a need for more people from state schools, from the regions, from different backgrounds. And I'm not just talking about people on camera or having someone that represents you or looks like you on camera. I'm talking about behind the camera, people who sound like you. um, And yeah, no, no. come from home, or come from a different place that doesn't just include London, and I had to rely on the generosity of a lot of people when I first graduated from my master's degree. I managed to live, a friend of mine let me live rent-free with them for a little bit, um, and without that generosity and without the scholarships that were available to me, I wouldn't have been able to get here, and I know there are lots of talented individuals who definitely have the ability to do what I do but don't have those options open to them. Um, I think that's kind of it, sums it up very briefly, um, but I'll happily answer other questions later so, on.
3: Great, thank you very much for that. Okay. Uh, I think after this, what am I going to say? I'm actually going to make up stories right now. <laughs> <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Well, uh, Like Hindu I'm Iraqi as well, I'm Iraqi, uh, but I was not born in, uh, in Baghdad, I was born in Istanbul, and the reason is my dad happened to be a career diplomat. And what that meant is that I sort of pretty much lived and studied almost everywhere. Out of the last 64 years, maybe i spent seven years in Allah altogether. The rest have been everywhere. So like I started school in, in Baghdad, then I went to Germany in Bonn, then it was Tehran, and a stint in Kermanshal in Iran, and then back in Baghdad for a number of years. And then I think I finished my high school in Algiers, and I did some A-levels in the UK, then I graduated. Um, in New Zealand now, unlike uh, my uh, your dad, my dad was quite happy for me not to do um, engineering or doctor because in in, in Iraq, the only respectable careers are engineering and doctor. So if you do a if you do a baccalaureate like like what we have, is those who get the highest marks, they end up by choosing medicine. So you go ninety plus, you go medicine; eighty plus, you're engineering. But even within the eighty, so. Like the lowest of the engineers tend to be the civil engineers. The architects are called engineers and they are the ones who are almost 90. Those who barely make it, touch 50, they go to sciences. And I went to mathematics. So my dad, one of the reasons why he was open-minded from the beginning and I was lucky in so many ways, he wanted to become a chemist. But his dad told him, what? My son becomes an Arabic, it's the word which is like potion maker. So what are you gonna become and so his basic idea was he, would, he studied um, you know, the other respectable career, which is just as good, which is becoming a, um, a lawyer. So, you know, it's just to give an idea. And so when I wanted to do that, he was okay with that. And by the way, when I was uh, studying for um, A-level before going to New Zealand, I almost went to Hull. I wanted to go to that university. It sounded really exciting, far away. I went there. It was too
2: cold I at the be So,
3: so I became a mathematician, and um, I didn't really look for a career other than mathematical. Well, because I fell in love with technology or with computers those days. And let's go back to the days when word processors really were, were something new. So I learned how to program printers and what have you. And then found myself I'm not really interested in a career in mathematics. I wanted a career in um, in technology. And so that was the early uh, uh, 90s. But then I happened to be married at that time, uh, thankfully no longer, but at the time uh, – <laughs> yeah, at the time, um, you know, when you get married, you end up by having lots of debt. And so I started looking at the career center at Oxford. and. One of them says this investment banking thing and there's a broker thing. And I said when I looked at the starting salary, and I said, I want to do that. <laughs> so, <laughs> so but and it really much defines really where where I did with all of my career. I did not end I did not have a clear idea where I wanted to go. Most of the time I looked I was sort of like the one thing I made sure because I lived everywhere, I was almost a foreigner. So almost you, wherever you go, you're a foreigner. Even in my own home country, I was a foreigner. So you end up by trying to be as good as the next person or actually even better than them. So I ended up by working hard, studying hard in those days, especially reading, all opportunities open up and you look for them. So I started a career in brokerage and I was basically based in London. I was what's called the US institutional broker. So I worked with uh, guys who maybe you might have looked after your parents' pensions or not anymore, but they were my clients. And and I did all of that for a number of years Ended eventually, and oh, I did not focus on the Middle East. As an, as an Iraqi, I never saw myself as an Iraqi. I knew I was an Iraqi. I speak perfect uh, Arabic in or perfect Iraqi more than anything else. Uh, but I never thought of myself. I've been always an international person or wherever I went has been a home. So in fact, London is more home for me than anywhere else. I've been in the UK for almost 38 years or thereabouts. It's been more